0: Wild in the City, exploring how a deeper connection with nature helps an urban city thrive. Hi, I'm Jim Newberry.
1: And I'm Janet Wells we're with environment sandy springs and we're your
0: neighbors you know janet there's been a lot in the news lately
1: about native plants being in decline what what's going on yeah really well everything is going on it's in all the papers you know And it's not just plants. You know, just the other day, uh, Charles uh, uh, Seabrook had an article that he does in the uh, AJC, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, every Saturday about the, the alarming decline in native bats in Georgia. And one they can't find yet. So, I mean, it's animals, too. Habitat loss is the primary cause of higher extinction rates And residential and commercial development and other human activities also cause problems.
0: So what happens when native species go extinct?
1: Well, if a a species has a unique function in its ecosystem, its loss can prompt cascading effects through the food chain. Uh, It's called a trophic cascade. Whoa. Yeah, impacting other species and the ecosystem itself. So
0: so that's like a collapse?
1: Exactly, yes. Okay. And, and this is why people should transition to native plants versus non-natives and invasives like lawns, let's say. But see, native plants trap carbon, protect cities from heat and water. Clearly, native plants are better for our wildlife than non-native plants, right? But the benefits don't end there. Creating habitat can also help to address... The big CC, climate change.
0: Let's uh, let's get some help from an expert. Please welcome today, uh, Laura C. Martin. Laura is an accomplished writer, botanical illustrator, naturalist, artist, lecturer, and storyteller. She has to date published 26 books on gardening, wildflowers, and crafts. She also wrote a weekly gardening column for the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, and for many years was gardening editor for both Atlanta Homes and Lifestyles magazine and Georgia magazine. Laura has also written Nature Based, a blog about nature and gardening, and her latest book came out in 2021, A Naturalist Book of Wildflowers. She lives in Atlanta where she spends as much time as possible in her garden. Today we will talk with Laura about her passion for native plants and why native plants are so important.
1: Well, welcome, Laura, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Yes, yeah, so Laura and I go way back, but we're not going to talk about that.
0: <laughs> well, Laura, uh, tell us why you were so enthralled with wildflowers and native plants. What, what is it about them that everyone should know about?
2: Well, those are two different questions and I can only speak to um, why I'm still so passionate about native plants and I really believe that it um, stems back to my childhood. I grew up in Sandy Springs. My parents had six acres of woods way out in the country, which was on Burnett Road between Long Island and Lake Forest, and this is where I grew up, and in those six acres, my mother was able to uh, identify 32 different wildflower species. And she was so excited. So I grew up thinking that wildflowers were just the most exciting things that could happen to you. Um, So I have to give my mom credit. She was the one who was so passionate about them. And I I grew up learning about the wildflowers and about how special they were. Um, And since then, got a degree in botany and have really still focused on our native plants just because I feel that they are the most important. I have gardened all kinds of different ways, but I keep coming back to the natives. And a lot of the reasons that you were talking about earlier in that they are are our plants. They are the plants that are part of our own ecosystems and our own culture. So I've always been enthralled by them and still to this day have focus on them and, and try to grow as many as possible. So what do I think everyone should know about the, the wild plants, the native plants? Um, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of question as to what is a native plant. And I think the first thing we need to do is come up with a working definition of what's native. A lot of people think that if it's wild and growing on its own, it's native, but that's, that's not really true because nowadays we have a, a lot of plants that are invasive that have come in and they grow on their own just fine, too well, but a native plant generally is considered a plant growing in an area where it naturally occurred before intervention of man, whether that be. European settlers or even the Native Americans would move plants from one region to another. So I think native, we have to go back and really consider it on as a part of a naturally occurring ecosystem.
1: So it could even be a cultured plant. But still be a native plant, like maybe Absolutely. Yeah.
2: And and that's what we're talking about, I think, when we talk about native plant gardening, is that we cultivate them, we take care of them, but they are specific to our region, to our our locale, to our ecosystem. And most importantly, they serve that purpose in the ecosystem. This can be pollinators, this can be larval support, this can be all kinds of different things.
1: Oh, yeah, larval support. And, and, and caterpillars are so important to feeding the birds. We have learned from this very program. So, Laura, what would you say is your mission as it relates to all of this? You know, I've, I've taken
2: my... Um, my passion for the native plants and for gardening pretty seriously in the past few years, and I think first of all, my my first goal is to do no harm, and this isn't just um, to uh, the to the earth necessarily, but to the ecosystem as a whole. So, in this do no harm category, I say you know I don't spray anything. I don't use any chemicals because every act that we do in our landscapes and our gardens has uh, an effect on the rest of the ecosystem. So this is one of the things that I've just thought I'm, I'm not doing. So I try to do as little harm to the environment as I possibly can. Backing that up is doing as much good as I can by planting native plants, by creating things, my particular garden, in a way that is a balanced ecosystem and will serve a greater whole.
1: And do you think that that educating people is perhaps one of your missions because you've been speaking, you've been writing books? I mean, um, do you want everyone to think the way you do? (laughs) Doesn't everyone? <laughs> of
2: course, I want everyone to think the way I do. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of information out there. And in some ways, I think there's not enough. And in some ways, I think there's too much. Because when you start talking to people about native plants, sometimes they get very confused because there's so much information. And the idea of saving the environment with your garden could be a little overwhelming. So, yes, I think. I feel like reaching people, educating people, raising awareness is definitely part of my mission these days. Um, I am working currently on a an art exhibit that will be at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens starting in August on the endangered plants that are grow in Georgia, the ones that are federally endangered. So, you know, that's my way of um, raising awareness to just tell people. But I I would hope that people wouldn't be overwhelmed. It's so easy to think that. Oh, I can't do this. So they don't do anything, but break it down. You know, yes, there are things, there are easy things that each of us can do every day. You know, plant a tree today. Don't spray from mosquitoes today. So yes, there's a lot of information, but I think that all of us should be um, proactive in doing something because all of us can do something.
0: You know, people say that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago,
2: <laughs> but today will do. Yeah. You know, as Thomas Jefferson <laughs> said, that a, a true test of an optimist is an octogenarian who plants an acorn.
0: Perfect. So, can gardens save the environment?
2: Well, that's a good question, and I like to think yes. There are a lot of gardeners. There's 62 million gardeners estimated in the United States that control 42 million acres. So that is a huge amount of land that just people, just people like you and me, can control and influence. As Jana was talking earlier, plants have the capacity to actually take COT from the air to transport it to the ground and to store it into usable carbon in, in the ground. So yes, I think that gardens and um, gardeners can have tremendous influence on climate change. Mm-hmm. But, but it's you- gonna take a shift in how we view our gardens. For, ever since we had gardens, it was what we can get out of our garden. You know, is it produce, is it beautiful flowers, is it a pleasing landscape? What can that garden do for me? And I really think that with climate change that shifted, what can we do for the garden to help it become a balanced part of a healthy ecosystem?
1: wonderful well does that even include small gardens like a wisp of a garden can that help if you have of course i love wispy gardens they're just (laughs) the best um i often wish
2: i only had a wisp of a garden (laughs) (laughs) me too (laughs) yeah um although i love my garden and love spending all my time out there but i think If we work together, and the more I get into this whole idea and this whole concept of what it means to use your garden to help nature, I realize that it's a community situation, that there are no boundaries. There's no boundary between my neighbor's teeny garden with, you know, 10 plants in it and my much larger garden. You know, there's fence, but... the birds, the insects, the air doesn't know that, neither does the um mosquito spray that she sprays, so you know there are no boundaries, and I think that each of us use. If we use it to the best of our capacity, together we'll have a greater influence. But also there's this concept of um, creating pathways. You know, the the concept's pretty well known as far as wildlife, wildlife corridors, and you know out west, how they have their tunnels and all the things that the wildlife can go from One area, protected area to another. Well, the same is true of pollinators. So, if I can convince my street, everyone on my street, to put in some pollinator plants, then we've got a quarter, then we've got a greater influence. Yes, so
1: anything. You can do, no matter how small, Mm -hmm. it will be helpful. Mm -hmm. And even not do, because, you know, I've had my heart broken as I've been studying this deeply, deeper, I should say. And that is like, don't put an antina in your yard, yard, or a crepe myrtle. Who knew that a crepe myrtle? Or a magnolia. Well, grandiflora is a problem, not all. Right. Right, right. So anyway, it's like what you cannot do as well, uh, you know, to help the birds, like cedar waxwing can die, they say, on the uh, Nandina berries. Right. And
2: Doug Ptolemy, who wrote fabulous, fabulous books, goes into this whole idea of the appropriate use of landscape plants and how, as you say, they can actually be harmful. But if, I do think this is where people may come to a point where they get confused and it's like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what not to do, and if there are too many rules, then I'm afraid people are just going to say, you know, I'm just going to do it and whatever happens to the cedar waxwing happens. But I think if you keep going back to some basic tenets, and one is use more native plants. You know, you don't necessarily need a list of species that are harmful. If you go back to some general concepts, use more native plants, control invasive plants, don't spray for anything because you're going to kill the pollinators. So, you know, protect the trees that we have. And I think that. It's sort of like the same idea as buying a new car every year. And if you buy a new car, that's great. It costs a lot of money. It uses a lot of resource. But then you have to get rid of your old car, which also is wasteful. And the same thing with plants. If we can protect and really nurture the plants that we have in our garden, whether they're they're native or non-native, if they serve a purpose in the ecosystem, then I think that we're better off.
0: I think you may have answered this, but are you a proponent of less lawn and more garden?
2: <laughs> now, how would you guess that?
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
2: That's sort of a leading question. It's funny that, that you mentioned this because my, um, my big goal in the past year has been to reduce the amount of lawn that I have in the front. I live in a historical neighborhood, and my home is... It was built in 1910. It's very Southern. It's very traditional. So I have a bit of a responsibility to make the landscape support the the structure. So I feel like I kind of need to fit into my neighborhood, but I have reduced my lawn by three-fourths. The lawn that I still have is um, squared off. It's looks very intentional. It's a very small area, but it supports the the feeling of the house. It supports the style of the house, so it gives me just enough structure so that beyond that, you know, I have the Echinacea, I have Black-eyed Susans, I have all these great, great um, native pollinator plants, but With that small lawn, then I don't water, I certainly don't spray. I bought a push mower, I bought an electric leaf blower, so my emission is zero. My personal expenditure is great, but I love that. I have such a small lawn now that it takes no time to to cut it with a, a push
1: mower. Well, I hope you're influencing uh, the Buckhead yards, you know, because <laughs> you, you, how are we going to eliminate our chemical water and fossil fuel dependence and still, and I'm sure this is a mentality, and still have beautiful gardens, you know, you know, and, and maybe you're setting an example in a place that's very noticeable, but how are we going to do that?
2: Well, I think first of all, we need to uh, redefine what we think is beautiful landscape and that if it's you know a huge expanse of the English-looking lawn that you, that is your concept of a beautiful landscape, then it's it's going to take a bit of an adjustment. Period. There are many different ways that you can approach reducing lawn um, on the street level. Of at my house, I took it all out this spring, and I had dwarf mondo grass put in. I know Dwarf Mondo grass is not native and I looked long and hard for an alternative, but what I needed was something that didn't need mowing, did not need watering, and that would set off the rest of the flowers that are planted around it. So, you know, Dwarf Mondo is a fabulous lawn alternative. If you wanna go native, there are many different things that you can use, especially if you have like semi-shade, you can use, chrysogonum, green and gold, which is a gorgeous, wonderful little ground cover. You can use um, dwarf hepatica and dwarf ginger, creeping phlox. There are many different um, plant alternatives to use for a lawn. They're beautiful. You know, they bloom, and it's not a monoculture, which is one of the really detrimental things about a lawn. It is one plant, and it's Compacted roots and cannot support much of a rich earth beneath it.
1: Yeah, it's an invasive species, really. I, I, I believe I've heard that. What have you learned about
0: how to deal with invasive plants without using chemicals?
2: <laughs> um, Does your it's back, back hurt? Work. Yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 yeah.
2: You know, it depends on the size of problem that you're dealing with. In my yard, I can pull it by hand, and I have vinca. I have English ivy. Fortunately, I do not have kudzu, but I have a lot of plants that are invasive. But I can get in there. I can, you know pull it out and clip it back and and stay on top of it. And it takes persistence doing that, but I can do that. Along the roadsides or like the project in Sandy Springs along under the highway, the power lines, you know, it's more difficult because you've got such a large area. So goats, of course, are a great alternative. Goats will eat almost anything. So that's one. There are, you know, different methods that people are, are working with to, to do it, but it is a serious issue, and it is one of the greatest threats to the endangered and threatened plants all across the United States, because once these invasive plants start coming in, they're going to crowd out anything else. I was just reading in Dead Ptolemy's book about kudzu, and he was saying... 7 million acres in the southeast are covered with kudzu, which is just mind-blowing. I had no idea. But he also said that it's not just crowding out the plants, but when it grows grows over a small oak tree that you have lost, you know, the capacity for that oak tree to feed what is a 430 Mm -hmm. caterpillar species. So... It's this catastrophic domino effect that you were talking about that losing a a species or even losing a tree affects so many other things. So invasive plants are a serious, serious, serious issue.
1: What can we plant say to replace lawns and replace the invasive species? And what I'm asking you really is uh, what species have worked best for you? Well, I'm fortunate because I have my
2: backyard is shade and semi-shade and my front yard is sun. So I've been able to plant um, different types of ecosystems. It's funny when you say what has worked really well for me, because some of the things that have worked really well for me have worked so well that now I'm pulling them out. They've become slightly invasive, but I don't mind so much because they're native like Black Eyed Susans. Black Eyed Susans in my front yard would take over the entire space if I didn't keep them under control. But they're native to this region, they're native to my area of Georgia, so they serve a purpose. So I'm not, you know, I don't consider it um, invasive. I consider it an enthusiastic and um, <laughs> out of <laughs> out of control <laughs> but it, it's it's okay. So black like high seasons have done really well for, for me. Um echinacea, the purple coneflower does great, but I have to say that It's only the species that has proven to be really solid and to come back year after year in a very healthy way, which brings us to the question of cultivars, because as you well know, Echinacea, the purple coneflower, now comes in neon yellow and orange and purple and green and all, I mean, they have hybridized this plant a lot.
1: Well, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about that, because some of them are so beautiful. So what do you say?
2: Well, I say from a pollinator's viewpoint that I'd much rather go straight to the old fashioned species than I would a neon orange <laughs> purple cone <comb flower. laughs> um, They've done a lot of studies on this. Mount Cuba Institute up in Delaware especially has done just fabulous work on testing different cultivars as to whether or not the pollinators will still go to them. Do they pollinate? Do they go in the same numbers and that sort of thing? And of course the results are all over the place. But in general, what they have found is that cultivars of Native species are not as attractive to pollinators as the regular species is, and this makes sense you know hybrid plants cultivated plants are bred for a specific reason for color for there's like for example a double blood root, the sanguinaria canadensis, the blood root, which was a naturally occurring mutant, so that the blossom itself the petals tripled. That's beautiful, but there's no pollen left for the ants or should the pollinators. So the cultivars themselves, you know, are, I guess, better than planting a non-native species, but not as good as planting the straight species. And, you know, we're back to defining beautiful. So you may want a neon orange echinacea in your, in your garden because it, you know, provides the, a spot of color and I think that's great but just make sure that you back that up that you that the basis the backbone the whole foundation of your garden is native plants that will serve the native pollinators.
0: Are there alternative gardening methods that you have found particularly successful?
2: Do you mean maintenance, like pulling out the invasive plants and pushing my own lawnmower?
0: <laughs> yes, things like <laughs> Plugging that. Plugging
2: in my, my little uh, um, lake floor? Yeah, um, there are. And I think that a lot of these are not new methods. A lot of these um, are suggestions that... Gardeners have been aware of for a long time, decades. Like xeriscape gardening. Remember that one that was oh, so yeah. Oh, popular. Yeah. yeah, you know, years and years and years ago, and about planting plants in groupings that will um, have the same water needs or light needs, so that they don't need as much attention. Because if our goal is a balanced ecosystem, then what? Our goal is, is to interfere with that as little as possible. So we plant plants native to our region that are sufficiently watered theoretically and have the right light requirements so that we're not constantly messing with it because when you mess with a garden it's when you use resources, you use extra water, you use fossil fuels. So the less we can do with our gardens, as far as maintenance, the the more healthy ecosystem, I think that we're establishing.
0: Good thought.
1: Well, Laura, moving beyond home gardens, just for a moment here, what impact can native wildflower meadows under utility lines in urban cities have? Well, remember when we were talking about these corridors? Yes. You know,
2: that's what you've got if you can get larger areas planted in native plants, then you've got just an oasis. You have a spot that will not only be useful um, educationally for other gardeners to come in and see, but you have supplied not only for pollinators, but think about the um, area that plants and animals can come in and use for home, for protection, for food, for supplying berries for migrating birds. I mean, the larger area you have, the greater impact that you can have on a greater environment. So I am a a huge fan of using large public spaces for um, establishing ecosystems.
0: Thank you. Good. I know you've written in the past, uh, the more information we have, the more success we will have. So I'd like to ask, what creative solutions have you run across lately?
2: Well, as far as doing the gardening and um, creating a balanced system, it's using plants, I think, that would grow together naturally in a plant community. This whole idea of planting a community, I think, is sort of an overview of everything that we've been talking about it's not that we want to go in and plant you know one species of say native flocks and think that we've planted uh, you know created an ecosystem that's not if you think of it as you would think of a zoo you know a zoo is not an ecosystem a zoo is not a naturally occurring Anything, you have specific animals there for educational purposes. So that's, we don't want our gardens to look like a zoo. We don't want one of each and just to say that it's native or just because, you know, it's, it may be interesting. But if we can think about it, think about it as a system, you know, what, what was here originally? i don't know and and we'll never recreate what was there originally everything's different the soil is different the water the air everything's different but if we can come to some sort of information about planting a community what goes together what supports each other you know how did it how will it work together to support not only the plants but the animals the insects and underneath. You know, we haven't talked about the importance of creating a healthy soil, but the ecosystem in the soil is is incredible. So that too has to be taken into consideration.
0: And aren't there plant communities that work together in concert with a tree, for instance?
2: Well, I consider that part of the community, that yeah. you have different levels. You know, you start beneath the soil and you have all the microorganisms and the ground covers, and then there are herbaceous and taller plants and shrubs, and then, of course, the trees. And one of the problems with... Um, Invasive plants is that it freezes a plant community in one stage. So if you think natural succession, which goes at various rates in different parts of the country, but in the South Southeast, natural succession, old field succession goes pretty quickly. But if you have cuts that come in, then you're stuck at that level. You'll never have the shrubs coming in, you'll never have the changing into the pine and oak forest. So I think a community involves all layers.
1: Laura, I I think that's true of English ivy too, especially. I have woods behind my house and in front, and the English ivy from other yards has just invaded it. And I'm going to have to spend some money here to get rid of it. So I, I, I totally agree. It's eaten up all the native blueberries, the ginger, everything. It's all now just ivy. So, but please talk to our listeners, Laura, about slowing down, observing more, and becoming even more curious and enjoying our gardens.
2: <laughs> well, that's one of my favorite topics. Every year, my husband's gift to me is an afternoon at Joyce Kilmer National Forest up in North Carolina. And he says, it's a two and a half mile loop, and he says I crawl around it and take 10 hours. That's slight exaggeration. Last time it was only nine. Not really. But (laughs) it is so wonderful to be able to take the time to look at each of those wonderful, exquisite wildflowers. And every time I go, I see something different. And then I come home and I realize I could crawl around my own backyard and do the same thing. Because once you Once you take the time to look, you can spend a very long time looking at a very small part of the garden. And every time you you do slow down, you will find something magical about it. And then it becomes... Contagious, you know, you wanna the more you look, the more you want to look, the more you see in your garden, then the more you are going to look for different things in the garden. So the garden feeds us. It always has. It's always been one of those things that we use and we get pleasure out of, but just to use it as an oasis is is pretty amazing. I read an article not too long ago about using the garden, and then the author ended with this saying that a garden has always been an oasis, but it's no longer a private oasis. It's a public oasis. And I think this is such an incredibly important concept that when you talk about community, You not only talk about a plant community, but we are part of that community as well. We are part of the system, and there are no boundaries. There's no boundary between your neighbor's English ivy and your yard. There's no boundary between my pollinator plants and the mosquito spraying next door. So I think, you know, my goal, my dream would be that gardeners as a whole View ourselves as part of this ecosystem that we're all part of this um, community of plants and people that will eventually heal the environment.
1: Oh, that's wonderful, Laura. That is a wonderful statement. I hope everybody gets to hear that.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and and you know, Doug Tallamy has a website now called. homegrown national parks that's what we would become i mean because yes. like you said it's public it, it would be not just private but it's everywhere so that's and, just it, and as
0: i like to remind everybody 91.5 percent of all the land in the state of georgia is privately owned so we who have homes have a lot of work to do yeah laura is there anything else you'd like to share with
2: our listeners I don't think so. There's a lot of work to to be done and a lot of joy to be had while we're doing this work. but I think that um now is the time to do that work. I think that there is nothing controversial about climate change there it is here, and it is making its effects known all over the world so we have we have a lot to work to do. But in a way, that's really encouraging because it's so much better to get out and do something than to just sit around and worry that there's nothing to be done.
1: I agree. And you know what I'm I'm wishing and I'm hoping for is that there become landscaper companies that specialize in creating natural habitat gardens. I think that would be just a wonderful thing. And maybe everybody would think it was fashionable as well as practical. Yeah. I want to thank you, Laura, for sharing your wisdom today, and you really did. We really appreciate it. You are so welcome. I was happy to be there.
0: Thank you so much. And I wanted to remind our listeners that Laura has a new exhibition coming up in mid-August at the Atlanta Botanical Garden called Imperil Beauty. This is an art slash educational exhibit of 18 watercolor paintings of the federally endangered plant species that grow in Georgia. Mark your calendars and come help raise awareness of the rare and vulnerable plants in our state. Thanks, Thanks again, again Laura.
1: Laura. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Environment Sandy Springs. Don't forget to tune in to the next episode wherever you get your podcast or see it on our website, environment-sandysprings.org. Until Until next next time, time, cheers. cheers!